Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Hello, welcome everyone to another episode of Making Sense of Mayo. My name is Maddie Metcalf and I'll be your SpeechTherapyPD.com host for Making Sense of Mayo. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. This episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Our guest tonight will be Christy Gatto. Her financial disclosures are that she has three books, Understanding the Orofacial Complex, The Evolution of Dysfunction, Understanding the Orofacial Complex, Muscle Manual, and Sam the Super Chewer Eats, for which she receives royalty payments. She is the owner and a treating clinician with the Speech and Language Connection in Houston, as well as an instructor for many courses on orofacial myology, feeding, tethered oral tissues, and sleep for which she is paid. Christy will also receive an honorarium for this podcast. Christy's non-financial disclosures include her position as a current board of directors member for the Oral Motor Institute and on the editorial review board for the Dental Sleep Practice Magazine. She is a member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association and a past president of the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Additionally, she has served as a board of directors member for the American Academy of Private Practitioners in Speech Pathology and Audiology and a member of the Community Advisory Board at the University of Houston. I am the host of this podcast and receive an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and I do not have any relevant non-financial relationships. Now, without further ado, we welcome our guest, Christy Gatto. Christy Gatto, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P-C-O-M, has worked as a speech-language pathologist in the public and private school systems, skilled nursing, rehabilitation, and children's hospitals, and has been in private practice for more than 20 years. In 2004, she began her journey in treating children with pediatric feeding disorders. After years of searching for answers in traditional feeding approaches, she underwent training in the field of orofacial myology and became the first certified orofacial myologist in the city of Houston in 2011. Ms. Gatto is the owner of the Speech and Language Connection, treating patients of all ages with issues in feeding, dysphagia, deglutition, oral sensory aversion, orofacial myology, swallowing-related disorders, and associated concerns with sleep-related breathing disorders is her passion. Hi, Christy. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. How are you doing this evening? I am exhausted, <laughs> but it's all good. And I love talking about anything when it comes to oral facial myology. So I'm very honored that you asked and hopefully I can enlighten people on some new information. Awesome. Well, this episode tonight is really going to dive into the craniofacial complex. Your textbooks are fabulous and were a really big tool for me when I started off on my own career in oral facial myology. <laughs> and so I'm super excited to have you share about this. That's something just to let you know, it's just like with the books, they actually were created as a passion and a love because we had so many grad students coming through our office 
that had no idea what they were talking about and they had no idea even basic anatomy. And mm-hmm. so that's where the original muscle manual came out. And just because I wanted a Cliff Notes version for my students to have. And then it morphed into the textbook. And so it was interesting. Uh, well, that is awesome. As a newer clinician, as I was getting in, I found them super, super helpful because <laughs> you learn all of it so quickly in grad school and then you get out and it's like, how do I apply this and make it functional? <laughs> so speaking of all of this, can you explain to us what the craniofacial complex consists of? When it comes to the craniofacial complex, you're basically talking about everything. <laughs> it's interesting because everyone always thought that, or I was always taught that you only dealt with your articulators, but it's like when it comes to the craniofacial complex, craniofacial complex is influenced by the way the rib cage sets, the way your shoulders set, the way your spinal alignment is. So those also impact. So that craniofacial respiratory complex is basically the head, the neck, the upper shoulder girdle, the rib cage, and everything so you can suck, swallow, and breathe appropriately. So I used to view it as just here. Now I view it as through the sacrum. Because if the sacrum's not aligned, then the rest of the body isn't either. And so that's a new sort of twist and turn that I've been learning about. Because as everyone knows, when they start doing a dive into a field, this included, basically, you realize that you know this much. And the more you know, the less you actually know. And the more you think you know, the more you realize that you have nothing and had no clue what you were doing. And so it's interesting. So when it comes to the oral facial complex, you're mainly talking about the head and the neck musculature. So you're talking about all the muscles of the tongue. So the eight paired, 16 unpaired or the muscles of the soft palate, the muscles of the lips, the muscles of the jaw, the muscles of the laryngeal area, all of those come into play. And then you also have your constrictors in the back, and then you have all of the musculature that goes into the shoulder girdle. So that's mainly when it comes to the oral facial complex. And in the book, it's like I only talked about everything to hear. I didn't start going into the shoulder girdle or the apparatuses with breathing just because that was one part I was just starting to learn about. So that is fascinating. So as you've kind of grown into looking at it beyond just from the neck up, mm-hmm. how has that changed your practice? What kind of providers are you working with to kind of really tackle this whole body perspective? At what age? <laughs> oh, great question. Can we like do a brief? touch on maybe like briefly, like across the areas that you work with? Absolutely. Like me personally, I treat all ages. Like the youngest I've ever treated is three days old. The oldest is 82. And so each of the areas, the collaborative model that you need varies a little bit more. So it's just like when you're dealing with feeding interventions for early issues where they can lead to myofunctional concerns in those early years, those are feeding concerns. So that's when you're, you might have the OT, the SLP, the IBCLC. If there are tethered tissues or anything, you might have the pediatric dentist, the periodontist, or the ENC as your release provider. You always want to have a bodywork professional involved. 
But the bodywork professional really depends on the individual's background. So it could be a PT, it could be a massage therapist, it could be a chiropractor, or it could be a doctor of osteopathic medicine. And so usually if it's a DO, I want someone who has training that has osteopathic manipulative medicine training in there. And so there's really a a whole myriad of people that are involved. I'm very privileged where I am now because in the last 10 years, this area has grown up with lots of collaborative people. And so most of my infant teams were early interventionalists. It includes all of those. Then when you get to school age, you usually don't have an IBCLC because they're not breastfeeding anymore, Mm -hmm. but you would replace that with more your orthodontist or the pediatric dentist who's doing early ortho intervention. You might have behavioralists involved then. And then when you get to adults, you almost always have your surgeons involved because most of the time when you're dealing with adults with this, it's not just tethered tissues. It's also led to temporomandibular joint disorders. It's led to the need for surgical intervention. It usually is related with apnea. So you might have your sleep neurologist on board. So the teams are really different depending on the ages, but it's all people meeting the needs of the individual. And so as we were talking about before, it's the whole thing where it's like, there's not a set of who is involved, but what is needed for that individual Mm. patient. So that's where it's like, I always look at, okay, what is the disorder? What's the dysfunction? Because it's always structural and functional. And then What do you need to actually help them get to be the best version of them for where they are? I love that. And I love that you're really diving in on, we do have to provide that individual care. It's not that every patient you're going to see is going to go to the same set of providers. We really have to pay attention, look at where their dysfunction is coming from, and then get them to the right provider they need. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing that's crucial is anyone that's just getting in this field, honestly, open the doors bang on people's doors, say, hey, talk to me about this. And it's not, well, this is what I can do. It's how can I help you help your patients? Mm -hmm. And the more you take that stance where it's like you want to help them, the more open people will be. Did have like a question, kind of a a broad question. I think it will really vary. But regarding osteopathic manipulation, do you Mm -hmm. find that it is difficult to get the service covered through insurance? I noticed this in conjunction with massage therapists tend to be cash pay. It's like I have one that has no problem with insurance and but I only have one in Houston of all places that will bill insurance and so I don't know if it's been a problem or I it's just people don't want to deal with insurance so and I know in my area we have some like occupational therapists and physical therapists that have craniosacral and so it's not necessarily like chiropractic manipulation but it's still we still see a lot of benefit in relieving body tension and things like that when we're dealing with ties well and that falls into their scope where it's like they can do that body manipulation whereas Mm -hmm. like there's another practice that's called craniosacral fascial techniques or cft with the glubsby approach and they train everyone You can be a housewife and get trained on this, Mm. or you can be a licensed professional and get trained. And it doesn't matter what the background is, whether that's right or wrong. It's like, that's for each to decide. 
But that's something, it's a very manipulative practice, but you can't bill insurance for that because a licensed professional has to bill. So when it comes to the DO, it's like, if it's a doctor of osteopathic medicine, then I would assume they would be able to bill, but it really depends on what procedure codes you use and what ICD-10s that are associated. And so that's like a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of what I figured. I feel very based on the provider and the training they've had and if they're licensed and all that fun stuff. And if um, they coded right and if they didn't code <laughs> it right and how that swirls together. Right. <laughs> Going back to the craniofacial complex. So we touched on it a little bit. The physiological processes that take place within the craniofacial complex are respiration, swallowing, and speech. Can you kind of talk to what is the foundational physiological process that takes place in the craniofacial complex? Okay. The basis of everything comes to breathing. You first Mm -hmm. have to breathe and then you eat and then you sleep. And so not something breathing is the basis of everything. And so when you're treating any type of patient, if you're noticing that breathing is dysfunctional, it carries through every level that you would be treating for myofunctional intervention or oral facial myology. So that is something that it's always the basis. And so if, well, if anyone wants to learn more with breathing, there are so many breathing practices out there now that are wonderful that you can do a deep dive in. And so I'd strongly recommend you do that. But yeah, breathing's always first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Posture's next. (laughs) Going back to posture, because whenever I was in grad school, so I've been practicing for three years. I graduated in 2020. And whenever I graduated, no one ever talked about posture to me, really. I mean, they talked about having good seating and like 90, 90, 90 for feeding, but we didn't really go beyond that. And once I got practicing, I was, I learned a lot from the PTs and OTs in my interdisciplinary clinics, but our posture plays such a big role in our jaw stability. If we're able to like sit and attend and all that good stuff. And it's yeah. funny that you said the 90, 90, 90 posture, because actually that's not right. And that's right. totally inaccurate, where it's just like you actually have to look at the spinal curve and everything. And that's the same with, I think it's been taught for 25 years or so mm-hmm. that you to be in that posture. And it's like, I know the more I dive into it, and the more I work with my body work professionals, it's interesting because it's like, okay, no, you have to have a 30 degree curvature of your cervical spine and a 30 degree curvature of your thoracic spine and a 30 degree curvature of your lumbar spine. And when you start looking at that, and like you said, with head placement, jaw placement, everything, a slight tilt forward can actually... Mm -hmm like increase all of the pounds of pressure on the spine and doing that, it can actually lead to significant issues that the body's going to continue to manifest as the person ages. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's like, I look at the babies I treat right now and the toddlers and preschoolers. And the first thing I'm doing is I start messing with the hips and we start getting things going. And if it's something where it's beyond breathing while I'm doing that, then I'm like, okay, we need a body worker in here. This is how we Mm -hmm. need to do it. Because if not, we're going to have issues. That's been a huge game changer for me looking at body tension, like actually can those hips move? Can those shoulders move in my babies? It's been very interesting. So can you explain why it's so important that SLPs have a strong foundational knowledge in the craniofacial complex when treating speech and swallowing disorders? Because I know I didn't whenever I graduated. (laughs) None of us did. 
And I think that's the thing. It's just like, you have to know the why before you can actually understand the how. And when it comes to swallowing in particular, if the patient isn't able to move their musculature in a certain way, you can say, okay, I understand this. But then when you collaborate with your providers, and let's say you see someone and they are taking a drink and instantly everything's falling out. They have open mouth posture, their tongues forward. You can describe that part, but then they still might not understand what you're saying. So it's just like you saw inadequacies with the anatomy associated with that, 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 that suspected muscle use of these muscles. It clarifies things and mm-hmm. it makes it not so clear as dirt type of issue. It right. makes it a little bit more clear. It's not as muddy. And then you start talking the same language. And so that's where it's like, I always encourage everyone, if you don't have a strong basis in an anatomy, try to, or if you don't recall things off the top of your head, use resources because the resources are what going to help you. And then if you're an insurance biller or if you're billing insurance, it helps justify, it shows exactly what you're doing. So there's no question. Mm -hmm. I've also found using your your text with the wonderful illustrations of the muscles. I have found that so helpful to be like, okay, this is what we're working on right now. This is the muscle. This is what we need to like happen. And like even being able to explain that, not all my patients, but some of them really want that higher level understanding and it gives them more buy-in to what we're doing because they know why they're doing it and what we're working on. But I feel like it also helps them do their therapy better because there is that deeper understanding. If you think about the way every patient learns or every person learns, you learn through visual, you learn through verbal, you learn Mm -hmm. through kinesthetic. And most people can't understand anatomy because they might be able to feel things. But if they can't see it and they're that visual learner, they need that extra layer. Right. And I do the same thing in my office where it's like, I have, I think I have three copies of of my book where it's like, I have one that's ripped to shreds. And then it's like, that's where I pull out and we have a dry erase on it. And I show them what I'm seeing. And then I have another one where I just flip it open, but it really depends on how much visual they need. So can you explain how the craniofacial complex supports swallowing and really kind of dive into that physiological process of swallowing and like why having a strong understanding of the anatomy and physiology plays such a role in treating swallowing. Okay. Well, that's where it's like with the anatomy, you're looking at for swallow function, the tongue actually has to go to the incisive papilla. Then you have to have the peristaltic motion going back. The swallow has to be triggered. But in order to do that, you have to be able to create intraoral pressure appropriately. The jaw needs to be in a certain level. So all of those things have to work for um, that valving system to actually work appropriately. And so I know that I Well, I think everyone is a professional that does have some level of understanding of swallow mm-hmm. that's going to be watching this. So with all of that, I mean, I go back to Jerry Logoman's whole order of process all the time, but it's mainly when there's that dysfunction, you need to know what is dysfunctional. So let's say you have a patient or 
a little one that they instantly are lowering their jaw to create bolus propulsion. You first need to think about, okay, why would that happen? Okay. It could be their buccinator muscles aren't working. It could be that the tongue's not working to do that peristaltic motion. So it's like, you need to have that full complex actually working to actually have that valving system intact. So once again, there's some controversy associated, but I guess what I'm really getting at is there's so much discussion about like non-speech oral motor exercises don't work. We don't do any oral work that isn't just the swallow, but in my myofunctional training and understanding more about muscle function, sometimes we do need to kind of elicit that. Like with my infants, I use a lot of reflex work to get tongue lateralization and elevation, cupping through eliciting that non-nutritive suck. And so technically those are oral motor exercises because we're not actively feeding, but if I don't do those things, then we don't have that improvement in their feeding skills that I've found. And that's something that's just like the musculature is the underlining movement. And Mm -hmm. if the muscles are dysfunctional, you're not going to be able to get speech in my belief. And it's just like, I know that with the controversy and everything, there's a lot, but I don't treat articulation disorders anymore. I treat muscle movement patterns Mm -hmm. and I have not treated a straight articulation disorder in 15 years, but I treat the muscle movement patterns that lead to the speech sound disorder. And that's where it's just like, yes, I know that there's some different neurological underpinnings that go into what speech versus swallow and it separates at the age of three. However, it's just like most of the time I still have to teach the muscle movements first. Mm -hmm. So it's like with articulation issues, it's like, is it a lack of tongue movement? Is it a lack of jaw movement? Is jaw instability? Is it what's going on? Because I look at it, if it were a straight articulation issue, I should be able to say, put the tongue here. This is what you're going to do. You're going to release air over the tip of the tongue. You're going to slightly groove, blah, blah, blah. And Mm -hmm. they should be able to do and if they can't, then we need to look at the muscles associated. Or like they're putting it between their teeth. Why are we putting it between our teeth right there? Like, why do they have tongue tip elevation? Can they lift it to the alveolar ridge? Exactly. I mean, and that's where it's like, okay, whenever you see that tongue protrusion and everything, okay, that's the anterior belly of the genioglossus that's overactive. So what's Mm -hmm. under, I mean, so that's where it's like looking at it, if you know the anatomy, and so going back to your original question, (laughs) if you know the anatomy, it helps you actually be able to explain, okay, well, this is what's happening and it's functional in this area. It's not functional in this area. So like for that anterior belly of the genioglossus, it's like, you're looking at that tongue protrusion. Well, that's something that, okay taking to infants, babies need to actually pull the breast in to get the teeth inside the mouth. But then that tongue thrust and that tongue extrusion reflex integrates into that next level. When it hasn't integrated, there's a reason why. And Mm -hmm. so that's where I typically see those patients where it's just like, I'll ask about breastfeeding. I'll ask about bottle feeding across the lifespan. And I don't care if the patient's 68 or if they're six, I want to know as much as I can about those early experiences, because that can show me what never developed. And so all of the debate, I really think it depends on what your experience is. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like a lot of the information that I've seen, it's just like, it is 
more than 15 years old, and I haven't been made of any new studies, but a lot of the old studies are being brought back up. And right. so that's where it's like, so I yeah. hope that answered better. <laughs> I think that was a great explanation. <laughs> are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature? The certificate tracker. The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. So let's go back to the physiology of swelling. So we really talked about infant. Can you kind of talk about maybe some disordered or dysfunctional swallows you might see in school age and older patients? Right. Well, normally when it comes to like school age, most of the time you start seeing the disruptions and the dysfunctional um, components happen when the palate hasn't developed and the, the children start getting into that transitional stage where they're losing their permanent teeth or they're losing their baby teeth. <laughs> the permanent teeth are coming in and that's when things start becoming more prominent. And that's where it's just like with that's also about the time when all of the speech sounds, if you're following the speech sound norms and not from a feeding development stance, but you're following from the speech sound norms, those should all be in place. And so that is when um, it used to be that traditional ortho was starting to watch things. And then they started two-phase orthodontics to um, to start early intervention, but that still didn't start until typically about the age of eight when that vertical dimension started growing again. So it's like, but when it comes to the school age, it's like, I'm going, my tangent, there's my squirrel, sorry, end of my day. Um, <laughs> But that's where it's like when it comes to school age, you usually see those thrusting things. It's because of the narrow jaws. They haven't grown completely. The tongue is at full size by the age of eight. So that is already occluding the palate, but the palate is still growing. And so you need to get um, that intervention needs to be in place. Um, it's like that was not a complete thought. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but so it's like with school age. So it's like usually you're seeing more of the thrusting issues or you um, the other part that changes that whole structure would be sucking habits. Um, and, but sucking habits are considered noxious after 12 months of age. And mm -hmm. it's not the traditional two or four. It's actually after 12 months. That's when sucking should be integrated into the suck and it's no longer suckling. Um, and so Can you give some examples of what those sucking, sucking behaviors might be for people that might be unaware. Okay. Any type of sucking habits or noxious habits or parafunctional habits, those are almost interchangeable. It mm -hmm. would be anything from thumb sucking to finger sucking to nail biting to hair twirling to um, it could be biting on pins. It could be constant chewing or parafunctional use. You could also look sometimes at um, bruxing and grinding as being part of that too, if there's mm -hmm. over excessive chew. Okay. And so those are more the main ones that you see, but there's, there, there's one other that I know some people talk about and that's trichotillomania where it's the hair pulling. 
but it's usually because of anxiety. Hmm. I didn't realize that that was, well, I guess it's noxious habits, not just mm-hmm. sucking behaviors. So right. oh, very so interesting. Noxious habits. And so, well, and think about it. It's like when it comes to noxious habits, most of the time with noxious habits, it's either an airway issue or it's because the tongue isn't stimulating the second branch of the trigeminal, which comes into the incisive papilla for that neurotransmission release. So anyway, well, I'll go into some more of the adult issues that you typically see when there's dysfunction with the oral facial complex usually re- um, are more related to either tethered tissues or um, or surgical cases. So TMD issues, sleep issues, things along those lines, because it's whenever there's sleep-related breathing disorders that haven't been addressed early on, it starts manifesting. And normally that starts about the age of 35. And so- Oh, Oh, no, that's just so crazy. Like, I don't know. I love that we're really circling back to this airway component because learning about airway has (laughs) changed my practice. (laughs) Like realizing that these kiddos that couldn't sit still, couldn't attend, didn't have the ability to self-monitor. So many of them had attention issues. And then you look and their tonsils are kissing or they can't, they don't have any nasal patency or it just really has big impacts. Right. I mean, and that's the very first thing that everyone should look at when they're doing an evaluation is can they breathe out of their nose Mm -hmm. and are they breathing out of it naturally? Or do you hear this? I mean, that obnoxious strider type sound or Mm -hmm. is it forced? And so that's one thing that I always encourage anyone that I've trained or anyone that's worked for me, you should always do a nasal breathing test. Mm-hmm. You should do a three minute nasal breathing test. Some people say two, I usually want to do three. And then um, you want to see if it's it with ease. And if it's not, that's the very first thing that you need to do is get that airway patency and then see if you can do it non-surgically, but then it might be surgical. What are the three airway tests that you do, if you don't mind sharing? No, it's just a three-minute airway test. Oh, three-minute. Sorry. So it's like, can they nasal breathe with these with their lips closed Mm -hmm. for a minimum of three minutes? Man, I've only been doing two minutes, so I need to increase my timer. I've just, I've just always done three. I know um, Zoggy actually promotes two. I just okay. always done three. That was yeah. something I, I just have forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so um, go ahead. You were going to ask me something else. Yes. So Joni asked, what types of tethered tissues can an adult have? The same as any other age. Um mm-hmm. Tethered tissues, it's just like when it comes to tethering, there are actually four frenum, or seven frenums that happen in the mouth. So you have your upper lip, you have your lower lip, you have your four buckles, and you have one under the tongue. So that tethering can happen and it's like at any age. And what happens is just like the way it's formed is think back to when we all learned embryology. Okay. So it's like we learned in embryology, the phase you have the five layers, they come together, they fuse in the middle, then they go midline. And then there's that apoptosis where it's that programmed cell death. Frenums are leftover tissue that did not absorb. 
or dissolve. And so it's just like the frenums in the cheeks are different than the frenums under the tongue, um, which is different than the frenum in the lip. The histology is just a, a little different. So the cheeks, you can get a lot more movement and everything. Under the tongue, you typically cannot. So that's something that um, you usually, when you hear about any type of releases or anything like that, buckles typically are only released if it's embedding the muscle fibers and it inhibits the muscle fiber. And so for anyone that doesn't know tethering, just know dimples aren't cute. Dimple is restricted tissue. And so as cute as they've been, it's like there's restriction there. And so that's something that um, I always, when I first learned that it was that whole mind blowing, because then I'd look at the ability to get intraoral pressure and it was always dysfunctional. Mm. So did I hear you correctly that buccal frenum can be manipulated and kind of stretched to improve the range of motion? Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. I did not know it, that. It depends on the tightness. Right. So just like everything, it depends mm -hmm. on the tightness. Um, but that's where it's just like, it's not absolute, but normally I will want to do all sorts of stretches like Beckman stretches and things like mm -hmm. that in the cheeks to get everything moving as much as possible. And then also it's just like, depending on the age of the person, it's just like if it's a little one that's nursing, I want to know, do they still have sucking pads and what's going on with that? If it's someone who's older, it's like, I still want them to be able to activate the buccinator appropriately. If they can activate the buccinator. Then I don't want this touched because I'm, I'm the type of provider where I want the least amount of invasive intervention, mm -hmm. but I'm also the first one to say, hmm, okay, I'm going to lay all of it out, but we need to find where you're comfortable and meet you where you are. Right. Because it's like, not everyone's going to go out and go get the Lamborghini when mm -hmm. they're not quite understanding it. So, um, we had um, a follow-up on the um, can adults have tether tissues and it is, do you believe in surgically cutting a tongue tie? I know I just saw it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and so, um, actually it depends on how taut the frenum is. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's like, not all ties need to be released if there's no functional limitation, right. there has to be structure and functional limitations for all of those. Yes. <laughs> and so that's where it's just like, there are times where it's like, I'll recognize that a littler one has frontal restrictions, but their function is okay at that moment. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to recommend it later when the vertical dimension increases. But at that moment, I'm saying, okay, let's, let's look at where they are. And make sure that they're developmentally appropriate with their feeding skills and make sure that they're appropriate with how they're using all their motor movements and there's not that restriction. But the second it becomes restricted or the second I start seeing changes in the structure, that's when I want um, I want intervention. And it's like there's sometimes parents will want to go ahead and, and get it done. And it's like, okay, well, let's not be so pre-exemptive with things. Let's actually hold off a little bit more and see and get them set up to be the best version of where they are right now. Mm -hmm. 
I actually told someone that today and she just looked at me and she said, but no, she's three months. And I was like, and her feeding skills actually look really good. And this baby was actually tied almost to the tip, but wow. she had lateral margin control. She could cut the tongue. She could actually lateralize to the posterior margins of her lower ridge. She actually had sucking pads and both. I mean, and so I know you were talking about oral facial complex, but it's just, I had so many babies today where it's just like, yeah. okay, wait, no, 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 let's back up. <laughs> so, so that's where it's like, when... When it becomes dysfunctional is when you want to do the intervention. Mm-hmm. And so I I do say that depending on the restriction, though, I would say 90% of the time it does end up leading to a release. But like even with my own kids, part of it was with my own, part of it was because I didn't have providers who knew what they were doing at the time that I knew something was wrong. But it's just like with my oldest, he didn't get released until he was 17. When should he have gotten released was when he was seven. Because that's when his dental transition changed and we started having an airway issue. Okay. My middle one needed to be released at um, at birth or within the first few months because he lost 25% of his birth weight within the first two months of life. That's an mm-hmm. issue. Nutrition is always first. Then it's just like, then you're looking at structural and functional development. Okay, now I'll stop because that's a soapbox. <laughs> but it's such an important one, I think. And it ties in so beautifully to the craniofacial complex because that is a deviation of typical in the craniofacial complex. And so it was a really great soapbox to get on, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, um, and that's the other thing. It's like the tongue is what forms the palate. Yes. And it's just like, and as Linda D'Onofrio says, it's like that the tongue is the palate's natural expander. And mm-hmm. the first time she said that, I looked at her and I was like, you know, that's actually brilliant. And she was like, I do have that every once in a while. <laughs> um, but that's where it's just like, yeah, because that's exactly it. That if the tongue isn't putting enough force on the palate laterally, then it's not going to spread that palate. And instead it's all going to be um, bunched up in the middle and it starts making that longer face, that narrowing of um, the maxilla, the palatal vault, and you start having all of those changes. Can you model for everybody or I can where the tongue is supposed to rest if you are not speaking or swallowing? Um, it depends on what <laughs> philosophy you have. It's, right, right. <laughs> it's just like the tip of the tongue should be to the incisive papilla. The lateral margin should be inside the dental arch, mm-hmm. lightly suctioned to the roof of the mouth. But that's where it's just like it shouldn't be fully suctioned. It should be lightly suctioned where it's resting. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it's like if it's touching the teeth anywhere, it's too far forward or too far lateral. So it should all be on that gum tissue very easily. I just think that I have a clinical student or graduate student right now. They were taught that the tongue's supposed to rest low in the mouth and that if you're a baby, it's supposed to rest between your lips. I want this to be a really informative podcast for people to, you know, learn about myofunctional. I'll model it really quick. So this is where we should have the tongue resting. So it's going to be a little bit more exaggerated because I'm going to open my mouth. But so that was like a full suction. But it'll need to be a little bit more relaxed whenever you're just resting. 
I can't do that with my mouth open, but <laughs> it should be up yeah, in the palate. It's super hard to model and I probably should have done that too. But yeah, that's the part that's crazy is just like when it comes to that resting posture at birth, the baby's mouth should be closed. Yes. The baby's mouth should be in the palate. That should be the way that resting posture is across the lifespan. It's Mm -hmm. also, you need to look at the way the lips are. And this is another thing when it goes back to the tethered tissue a little bit. If you see downward turning of the lips, then you know that the palate's growing a little more narrow. If you see arching here, that tells you that there's top tissues here. And so you need to look at the way the craniofacial view is to see what's going on. And so that can help a lot too. But no, the tongue should never be in between the lips, in between (laughs) the gum tissues, anything. It needs to be lightly resting on the roof of the mouth with the lateral margins almost sealing. And for anybody that does work with babies, my favorite thing is when they come into you and they're sleeping, you can just kind of pull that chin down and that tongue will be just like nicely suctioned up at the top if they're resting it appropriately. Mm-hmm. So fun thing to check out with your babies next time you see them. <laughs> and the tongue uh-huh. tip should be on the incisive papilla. I just saw Jennifer just asked that. And then just to, since there is going to be a podcast where there's not the video recording, I'm just going to provide a little bit more of a verbal description. So Christy has her wonderful mouth model right now. And so she's pointing to the incisive papilla to show where the tongue tip should be resting. So that tongue tip is at the incisive papilla. And then if you just kind of like roll your tongue upwards to the palate, you should feel it kind of go outwards and be lightly suctioned up there in the palate. And then to check that with infants, you just lightly, their lips should be at rest and you just pull down on the chin to open the lower jaw until that tongue will click off. That's what should happen if the infant has good resting posture. And you can only do that if they're awake or if they're asleep, otherwise they might not let you do that or it might not be accurate. (laughs) But yeah, so we've talked a lot about swallowing and rest posture and tethered oral tissues. Let's dive in a little bit to speech. We've touched on it briefly, but maybe we can kind of go into a little bit more detail about why the craniofacial functioning plays such an important role in speech production. Well, when it comes to speech, I look at it where, like I said, I haven't treated an articulation disorder in a long time. However, I always make a point of pointing out, like in the classes I teach, that the best descriptions of speech sounds from a muscle-based stance still comes from Wayne Secord's book, Eliciting Sounds. And so if anyone does have that, it's an oldie but goodie, but it actually explains all of the motor movement or the movements that you need, including velum release, lateral margin, everything. (laughs) And so when it comes to those speech sounds, most of the time, it's like you're looking at where the function is. So it's like, let's go into place sounds. So bilabials, what do you need to do? You need to have two lips close together. You need to be able to do a slight burst. You have voicing. So you're looking at your place, your manner, your voicing. You're looking at what happens. It's just like, is the velum open? Is the velum closed? Then you're looking at the tongue position. Does it matter? You're looking at the jaw position. Does it matter? All of those factors go into speech sounds, but Mm -hmm. they also are controlled by your muscle movements. And so if you don't have appropriate muscle movements, you're not going to be able to close the jaw quite the same way and be able to have enough resistance or dissociation and grating. 
And so that's something it's like dissociation and grading is always talked about when we're talking about feeding issues. However, they're so necessary for all of our speech sounds and that grading actually starts in infancy through vowel production. Just in case there we have a listener that doesn't understand grading or dissociation, can you give a brief description about those? Mm-hmm. When it comes to dissociation, it's like dissociation is the ability to move each articulator by itself. So it's like you should be able to open the mouth and lateralize the tongue without the jaw going side to side. Just a little verbal description. So for what she just did, she had her jaw open and she moved her tongue side to side. Her tongue tip moved beautifully to the corners of her lips while her jaw stayed super, super still. And so that's something it's like when it comes to jaw-tongue dissociation, that usually happens between the ages of four and six, but it can be up as late as eight for that to totally solidify. So it's like that dissociation, though, is basically the independent movements of the lips from the jaw, the tongue from the jaw, and the jaw from the lips. Okay. It's like, yeah. I think it all <laughs> but then when it comes to grading, grading is the ability to open the mouth just enough for whatever that median of transit is. So a median of transit could be a spoon, it could be a cup, it could be a piece of food, it could be whatnot. And so it's just like, if I am taking a bite of applesauce off of a spoon, I'm not going to open my mouth like I would eating a double-decker hamburger. And so that would be grading is understanding how much to open and how wide to open for whatever you're trying to consume. And so it's the same when you have patients that don't have appropriate grading in speech, where when they have vowel disruptions, where it's like all of their vowels sound like ah, when they're saying an E. And so that would be a grading issue with vowels. Does that make more sense? Yes. I think one thing that was really interesting to me is I took an oral placement therapy training through talk tools and they did this little exercise where they said, okay, like say all your vowels normally, A-E-A-O-U. And then they said, okay, now open your jaw as wide as you can and don't move it. Mm-hmm. And like my tongue was still moving. I wasn't keeping my tongue down. And then they had you anchor your tongue to the bottom of the mouth and move mm-hmm. your jaw. A-E-I-O-U. Mm-hmm. I can make all of my like vowels with my tongue not really moving a whole lot, but if we don't have that jaw grating, it really impacts how well we do our, how we say our vowels. Mm-hmm. And I did not understand how to treat vowels <laughs> before I took that course. And now I see vowel distortions in my kids. And then I look at their jaws and they don't have grating. They don't have dissociation. And we work on those things and then they start getting their vowels. <laughs> then very, very neat to kind of see how all of that ties together for me. Right. And that's where it's like with all of the articulation sounds, I know I, whenever I do have a kiddo that does have an articulation issue, even if we're working on myo, I treat it as not a child with apraxia, but I treat it from like the place. And so I'm looking at things from bilabials to velars to palatals to labiodentals. And I'm looking at how those are because usually it's a muscle deficiency that we're doing. And so whenever there's tethered tissues, that's usually where they're not getting velars, they're not getting palatals, and they have lateral margin control. Those are typically the ones that you're seeing, but it's like once they have more the movement and they've learned to do the movement with their structure, then you can get articulation that's appropriate, even if they still have restriction. 
And so, but it doesn't mean that their sleep's going to be okay. And it doesn't mean their eating's going to be okay. And so that's why when it comes to like speech sound disorders, they happen in less than 10% of OMDs. Brittany asked a question. So for articulation, if you see an issue with grading, would you use oral motor exercises to help with that? If I see issues with grading, then instantly I want jaw stability. I want to establish the different heights of the jaw. Some people say there are seven, some people say there are five, but I want to establish the variability with that jaw and stability with that jaw. I also want to look at that jaw tongue dissociation. So it's like you have to have jaw stability, but can you move the jaw by itself and remain stable? Or does it always slide to the right? Does it slide to the left? Can you do it symmetrically in midline? So it's always that jaw stability that you're working on. Can you speak briefly again about certain issues surfacing in one's 30s if not treated? I don't remember exactly what you shared. If not treated as in if tethered tissues aren't treated, if sleep-related breathing isn't treated, if there there's so many things. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, where do I even start? <laughs> when, when it comes to the airway. So airway is one of everyone's focus right now. It's like, that's the biggest focus most people are going for is because of all of the sleep related breathing disorders. When you're looking at airway development, airway development and the collagen and everything happens up until the age of 20, between the ages of 20 and 40, that's when it sort of stays still. And it doesn't increase, it doesn't decrease. However, around 40-ish is when you usually start seeing the decrease of all the collagen and everything. Think about it. So in that mid-30s to 40s, if you have someone who first doesn't have their tongue resting in the palate, they are mouth breathing, they don't have nasal breathing with ease, equal tonal balance with everything. Then what happens is you have bacteria constantly forming. Then you have the patient who then isn't getting into appropriate sleep patterns. They're not getting through five stages of REM every night. So that means that they're not their lymphatic system isn't getting to be the functional level to actually rid the body of toxins including cortisol, including all of the junk we want to get rid of. That's also when acetylcholine doesn't start working and you start getting plaque buildup in all of your dendritic connections. I'm like going so many things here. And so that's where it's like when it comes to airway collagen issue that usually starts about 35, that's when you see the decline of sleep. So Mm -hmm. Jennifer, I hope that even came close to what you were talking about. (laughs) that's where it's like sleep is something that's so interesting. And most of the time when you see sleep related breathing issues, there aren't always, but there usually are tethered tissues that are not allowing that tongue to be in that palate. That's a lot of what you want to look at is when you start seeing a patient of whatever age, it's just like, okay, what's the dysfunction? They're mouth breathing, but why are they mouth breathing? Why is the tongue easily resting in the palate? And why aren't the nasal breathing with these? Is it because the structure hasn't grown the way it needs to? Is it because the function? Because when it comes to every disorder, you have structural issues, you have functional issues, there can be behavioral issues, or there can be environmental issues. And so with all of those, did they not, were they not given an opportunity 
And so they didn't learn the skill or did their structure not grow the way it needed to? Was there some type of environmental impact where let's say it's an adult and they always sleep on the one side. So their jaws always shifted to one side and now they have joint issues. There's a lot of things that can go in to the adult population or the thirties and up. And so that's where it's so many things. I definitely see a lot of my adult myofunctional patients that I get that a lot of them have that temporomandibular joint pain and discomfort. A lot of them are having those sleep issues. A lot of them aren't chewing correctly, but they have no idea. All <laughs> asymmetrical so, with their chews. One, yep. <laughs> one mouth works, the other lateral pterygoid mm-hmm. works. <laughs> it's very interesting, but and just about every adult myofunctional patient that I've had have also had tethered tissues. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer asked, thank you. Are those adult clients then usually given a sleep apnea test or do they see a specialist? Ish. <laughs> Ish. <laughs> Prevents on the provider again. <laughs> exactly. It depends on the provider. Most of the time, since the ADA took the stance in 2017, requiring all dentists to look at sleep, um, that happened in November of um, 2017. It Most of the dental providers actually will do at-home sleep tests. When you suspect something, that's one of the first things that I do if, or I recommend if you're not quite sure what you're looking at, but you know, this is an issue, then refer for minimal invasiveness first. So I would want them to get an at-home sleep test through their dentist where it is using like a cardiopulmonary coupler system. So it's like monitoring their oxygen and the heart rate and everything. Some of the systems out there are as simple as you wear a ring. I mean, it can be that simple. And then if there's something, because that's more like you're screening. And so And it's either you pass or you fail. And if there's something that is questionable, then they automatically want you to do more the overnight sleep study that you would get in the hospital or with a sleep neurologist or someone who is actually more apt to do sleep function. Okay. So that's where it's, so it's not always you automatically go to the sleep neurologist and you need all of the tests that are hooked up everything. Because I will say that's one exam that I typically don't like to have my patients do unless it's needed. And so, and honestly, that's because I made my husband go through it and I never want to hear anyone complain about that again. (laughs) So now, because it's like, it's not comfortable. And if you think about for the full in-lab sleep test, it's just like you have all of the tubes and wires and everything and the beeps are going off every time. And anyone that's ever had a night in the hospital just knows that you don't get normal sleep. And then they're regulating everything off of that abnormal sleep to try to determine if you have issues. We have another question in the Q&A box. This one's kind of a really interesting case study. Any suggestions on working with a kiddo who had surgery for macroglossia as an infant and phrenectomy was recommended, but parents and orthodontists do not believe it's necessary. Patient is now seven, but does not have a lot of feeding and lateral margins and tip of tongue and presents with an anterior open bite, but getting palate expansion and tongue rake in two days. Tongue thrusting for all lingual alveolar sounds, oral resting position and eating, drinking. Any tricks on working with macroglossia patients? That just makes me want to cry. I know. It's like that whole thing is so wrong in so many ways. So uh, my heart goes out to you because when it comes to macroglossia, true macroglossia, 
glossia typically isn't there. It very seldom happens. And so that's the first thing, unless it is a syndrome-related issue. The next part is like with the macroglossia, I would love to go back to actually look at the surgical notes to see what actually they did. So it's like for the surgery, did they go in? I actually know what they did for this patient. It is syndrome-related and they cut out the middle of the tongue and then sewed it back together. So they have the lateral margins, but they don't have the the medial chunk of muscle. And so if you think about it, so that's your vertical and transverse muscle. So even if they did have lateral margin movement, they would never be able to raise the mid dorsum of the tongue mm. at all. And so that's where it's just like, and putting a rake in is only going to exacerbate things more. And so that's where it's just like, this would be one where I would really wonder if you could start doing some sensory innervation and everything to the lateral margins to try to get those nerve endings firing again a little bit. You might be able to. Um, Sometimes with that, you can use vibration, you can use lemon, you can use ice, you can use some of those different sensory components and see if you could just get lateral margin control. But the fact that they took out the middle that's that's your transverse and vertical muscle. And so with those, it would be really interesting to see if you ever could do elevation. So oh, I'm sorry, that's tough. It's going to be a really tricky patient for Megan. Yes, um, absolutely. Thank you for your input on that case study. We have a couple of others questions. Okay. So Heather says that she's new to this area in our field. Welcome, Heather. It is quite the rabbit hole to fall into. But she asked if you could talk a little bit about recommendations for teeth grinders. Okay. When it comes to teeth grinding, teeth grinding can actually be caused by a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's sensory. Sometimes it's airway. Sometimes it is where they have muscle imbalance. So with it, it really depends on what's going on. And so almost always you are doing mastication type exercises. You're working on getting symmetrical chewing. You're working on bilateral chews and unilateral chews and getting balance. If it's an airway issue, it's like, once again, you have to go to airway patency because the first thing the kid's going to do is, or the first thing anyone's going to do is if their airway closes, they're going to jut it forward and they're going to try to do that. That causes some of that bruxing that happens. So it really depends on what's the cause. So is it muscle imbalance? Is it like a child with autism who's looking sensory seeking and needs that sensory input? Or is it because of the airway issue at night and they need something to get that airway open? So um, those would be the three things you'd look for. A follow-up question. If you have um, a kiddo that's chewing for sensory input, do you just try to give them safe ways to get that sensory input? Or do you still try to find, is there an underlying reason for if it's just sensory? It, not always. Um, it's just like, it really depends. I mean, it it can be diagnosis related, or it could be that they just need sensory input. And usually that's low muscle tone. So it's like, when it comes to intervention, it's just like, I, I mean, I use anything from tools to food to what's going to help that patient be successful. And typically I will go to food first and then go to tools if they have more aversion than um, than the we can get with food movement. Okay. Um, so Kim asked, so grinding teeth at night is not necessarily related to stress. Thanks. 
No, it's like, um, oh, the other thing that can cause teeth grinding can be endocrine imbalance. And mm-hmm. so like with adults, it can be endocrine imbalance. Brittany asked a question in the Q&A box. So chewing only on one side, if you have dental work on the other side, you're avoiding chewing on, can that lead to a myofunctional disorder? Mm-hmm. If you only use one arm, what happens to the other muscles? They atrophy. Same mm-hmm. with the jaws. You've got two masseters. You've got pterygoids. Um, so you've got your medial and lateral pterygoids. You've got your temporalis. You've got your digastric. If you're only going on one side, you're only using one set of pterygoids and one masseter. And so even if you did have dental work, you need to figure out a way to actually get some chewing. You might not get maximum force for grinding and everything, but you need to get the muscles symmetrical. And so that's where it's like when I when I see patients like that, a lot of times we'll do is I go back to early feeding skills in early food introductions at first or any of my surgical patients that I see because I actually um, see a lot of maxillary mandibular advancement cases right now. And so the first two months of them after their surgery. I mean, we're on soft diets, we're on purees and everything, but we've got to start getting some movement. And so we'll use simple things like anything you can smush with your finger. And we'll use that to actually just get some of the activation started. And then just like with Um, with babies and kiddos, once it's like for anyone that has kids, think about when you first did food introductions. First, everything was so easy and smushable and everything. But then when you started getting into harder things, it really made the person start chomping. And that's what develops the jaws. So you first start small, and then you increase vertical height, and then you increase complexity. And that's how you get those jaws working. Fabulous. Um, This has been amazing, Christy. I cannot thank you enough for your time this evening. I know that I learned a lot from you. You got me thinking about things in a little bit of a different way. And I'm going to go grab your textbook and brush up on my anatomy a little bit more because you're, I love the way you've inspired me. I wish that I could be like, oh, that's this muscle and this muscle and this muscle. It was fabulous. That is my goal. Um, have a lot of really positive comments, um, coming in, telling you how amazing you were. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of making sense of Mayo. Thank you again, Christy. This was fabulous. Uh, Thank you, Maddie. This was a pleasure. I'd love to help people understand this. So it's like anyone that wants more information, feel free to reach out. Oh, do you want to grab your email really quick and we'll add it in the, or would you mind if we put your email in the comments for anybody that wanted to reach out? Not at all. It's um, my email is Christy at slchouston.com and you can reach out, ask questions. I will do my best to answer in a timely manner, but normally midnight to two is the best time I answer. So, and then if you want Anyone that wants more information on anything Mayo, seriously, it's a deep dive and you will spiral and it's never ending. And I started my whole journey about, well, a little over 20 years ago in this. And that was because I was a mom trying to figure out my, um, figure out my kids' issues. Mm -hmm. And then it, now it's just like, I love everything about it. And it definitely is something where you see it factoring into so many people's lives. 
So ask questions, do great. Good luck. (laughs) Thanks, Christy. Have a good night. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.